Hi everyone and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark number 35, discussions with Raoul Powell. So for most, probably no intro needed, but Raoul's the founder of Global Macro Investor or GMI, also the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. So it's a slightly different podcast today. Um, we're going to talk about a really kind of big subject. Um, we're going to talk about really the mindset required to make life-changing returns. So like kind of 100x type investments, could be 50x, could be hundreds of x. Um, and both of us think that there are a lot of parallels to being an entrepreneur. Um, and Raul and I, between us, have started many, many, many businesses. So you've got quite a lot of experience in that. And really very few people have made and realized huge returns on investments. A lot sell way too early. It's mentally incredibly tough. You know, if you're 20X on something, but you think it could go to 100, it's really, really hard. So we're gonna dive into all of this and um, try and work it out. So as always, it's not investment advice. Please do your own research. Uh, welcome, Raul, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Very happy to be here. Excellent, great to have you. Um, well, just to kick off, um, I kind of, I wanted to think of maybe a, a couple of ideas about how, you know, the types of investments that people could make that, that could lead to really life-changing returns. And they all require tons of risk. I think it's loads of traits for being an entrepreneur. Um, but there's kind of three most obvious I came up with, but I'm sure there's many more, are really kind of the first being timing a major down, like, like COVID, GFC. It can happen very quickly and can be very lucrative. Uh, number two is probably in many ways the most obvious, which is picking the next Google, which everyone would love to think they can do, but again, very tough. And number three, um, which we may talk most about, um, is really understanding a new paradigm before the market gets it. So you know, maybe Bitcoin right now, which has already given some people thousands of X returns, you could fit into that one. Um, and um, so I kind of, I was actually on Zach Abraham's podcast and he, he said, oh, it sounds like entrepreneurial investing. And I said, oh, that sounds like a really cool uh, kind of way of thinking about it. Because I think the mental strength is, you know, very similar to being an entrepreneur. So it's the type of stuff I wanted to kind of dive into. And, but maybe let's start with some, have you got some examples of kind of life-changing trades you've seen in your career? That'll be super interesting. Yeah. It generally all coalesces around one thing, the big idea. And then it's getting the timing right for the big idea. And those two things, it sounds very simple. It's incredibly difficult. The really inspiring one in financial market investing that most people aren't aware of was a guy called Richard Rainwater, who was one of the key people who managed the Bass family office down in Texas. And I think he'd retired at this point. And he started looking at the oil price in about 97, uh, 96. So we, if you remember, we went through the kind of deflationary um, Asian crisis and all commodities collapsed and oil hit over that period, $9 a barrel. But he'd been looking at it before as it had fallen below 20. And he was starting to think, you know, this feels wrong. So he starts with a premise and then he, you know, the internet had just basically started as a means of researching ideas. So he starts joining forums. And at the time, a theory that was coming out of people with experience was peak oil. Now, whether that, the that theory got disproved because of shale, but at the time, the supply side of oil was limited. And he realized the growth of China was a demand shock. 
So he started digging in and spent a long time in the dark corners of the web learning. And the more he learned, the more he realized that this was probably a really big opportunity, that the market was hugely mispricing the future. So he was a property guy at heart and he's done many things. So he started buying real estate in Houston, which was hugely discounted because the oil patch had gone bust. That's how he started the trade because it was kind of positive carry, i.e. He, he was getting tenants in the buildings and he had income coming in so he could build a large position and it didn't cost him a lot and then he could apply leverage. But eventually he layered this bet in numerous ways by investing in certain companies, but also just buying a shit ton of futures contracts. So he built this really big thesis and he spent over, I think the course of three years building his position. And then it started to work and then he added to it. And obviously oil went from $9 and then I think he sold out the bulk of his positions at well over $100. So 10X in oil, assuming that he took a lot of leverage, made him, he was a wealthy man already, it made him extremely wealthy. And to me, it was truly inspirational because he'd really done his homework. He had one trade, the one focus of his life. Sure, he had some other things on going on. You know, it wasn't the only thing he did, but it was the one big bet. And he knew his, he knew his subject. <clears throat> He understood it in great detail and he constructed the trade in the right way. And he must have made a couple of billion dollars out of that one trade. And that's one of the great examples of financial market investing where you can take everything. We've seen that a few times in the past. You know, the famous one is the big short where people figured out that there was an asymmetric risk reward. Um, and that's what these are all about, asymmetry. So you look for asymmetry, you look for trade construction, and then you make sure that you can hold on over the period of time. If you remember from the big short, a lot of people couldn't hold on. And the people that did were called crazy for a long period of time. So these things aren't hard. You need a massive stomach for risk. So it's those kind of bets that I, I'm becoming increasingly more interested in because that's what I think real wealth comes from. Even if you go through the rich list, um, whether it's in the US, the UK, or any other country or globally, most of the people who didn't inherit wealth got it from one big bet. Um, real estate happens to be one of those big bets. If you get the, the timing right, you see people who do that extremely well. Um, others, it can be industries or others, it's one investment theme. Um, so, you know, that, that's, the, that's the whole thing that I'm thinking is a very, very interesting space. Yeah, and so that's super cool. And um, I mean, one word that resonated is when you said the word crazy. Um, I mean, do you think it's similar? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, is it similar to when you start a new business, when all your friends and family, and we've all been here, right? They say you're nuts, crazy. I mean, these are the words you hear. Um, and, and maybe these types of trades, you, you kind of need to be a bit nuts and crazy. Um, I mean, in order to have that asymmetry, you have to be against consensus, almost certainly. So, Yes, but that can also give sloppy thinking. Oh, I'm right, everybody's wrong. So you have to be really careful because sometimes it's just not gonna pay off. Maybe your thesis is wrong. And you have to be prepared in life in how you can take that risk. And if it goes wrong, how that's gonna play out. What does that mean for you? Does that stop you taking any other bets again? You know, do you wipe out all of your life savings and do you have an income to replace it? So there's a number of 
factors that dial up or down the craziness. So really there is a whole process by which you need to think about this. Okay, you can take a bet by starting a startup in your 20s and you can lose everything. That's okay because you've got plenty of time to rebuild it. But once you've built a career and built some savings and you're in your 30s or 40s, well, then you need to be really careful. You need to structure your life around the ability to take the bet. And I think that's a really important thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, so how do you know when, I mean, again, it's, there's no perfect answer here, but how to know when to really concentrate? I mean, the classic expression, right, is, you know, you, you concentrate to accumulate and you diversify to, uh, to preserve wealth, right? And, and I'm assuming we're saying, and again, concentration could mean different things to different people. Um, it, yeah. and it could be an options bet that's with 20% of your net worth, which in options obviously could go to zero and that would be very concentrated. Um, or it could be, um, you know, half of your net worth in, 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 a, in essentially an asset that is very unlikely to go to zero. But I mean, we don't need to get into all the numbers, but, um, how, but how do you know when? I mean, you mentioned before about, it sounded like with um, Richard, there was thousands of hours of work, some inspiration that kind of came to him sometime. He um, was clearly being pretty contrarian. He probably crunched a whole bunch of numbers. Like, uh, I mean, or do you just wake up one day and you suddenly think, ah, you know, here we go. You know, this is the next thing. Um, it's usually connected to something you already know. So if you go to the Richard Rainwater example, he knew that he was a real estate guy and he was from Texas and he knew that Houston real estate was extremely cheap. So that question, why, led to, oh, it's all about oil. And then what does that mean? Led to, ah, uh, I see. The price of oil is completely mispriced versus the future supply and demand. And therefore he did it. So yes, look, I mean, some entrepreneurs just wake up in the middle of the night, but generally speaking, or, or investors do, but generally speaking, it's a lot of preparation. And it's a connecting of ideas and seeing patterns emerge and going, you know what, the timing is feeling like it's coming. And then you start digging in, doing your homework, thinking about how you're going to do this particular idea, whether it's a business or whether it's a trade. So it, it takes time and it takes some real reflection on, okay, what are the things I'm joining here? And is that right? I mean, you know, a lot of people, for example, I see this trade a lot with the uranium trade. And I don't know whether that's going to play out, but a lot of people, it's their big idea. The problem is, is it is based on one premise that really that nuclear power is going to increase in demand over time. And that's yet to be fully proven out. So then you're in the vagaries of supply and demand of which you can't control anything of, and it's hard to construct the trade that makes it a really good trade. So, you know, people have been trapped in that trade for a long time and it's a big idea. So, it feels like maybe that's not the idea. Um, and, and it's difficult to know really what the, I think it's, you need more than the, the obvious catalysts. You need something that nobody else is seeing, not what everybody else is seeing. Um, I think that's, that's really where it, where it comes from. Yeah, no, the uranium ones, we've spoken about that on this podcast a few times. And I mean, I've got like a, very small amount of super long-term call options in, uh, I think, Cameco. Um, but it's, um, but there are certainly some people who are, to me, they seem a little overly sure that they're right um, when there's not been the proof yet. Um, and actually, uranium... No, and you've, so you've done the right thing, which is, okay, I'm, I'm 
intellectually interested in this um, opportunity. I'm not sure that it's gaining traction yet. So in which case, if I buy some long-term call options, I've got some time on my side and I've got limited downside. And if it starts taking off, then you can start piling into the bet. But it's got you into the bet in a way that has managed the risk and allows you to keep on your radar screen, much like Richard Rainwater does with the Houston property. So it's, it's these kind of things that are really important. The wrong answer would be put 100% of your net worth into a trade that's not working yet. Right. <laughs> um, and um, I never really realized there was this subsection of Twitter, Uranium Twitter. And um, I think there are some people probably in that latter camp. Um, but I also think what's interesting is just having a tiny position in it, and really tiny, I'm talking like a fraction of a percent. Um, like, it stares at you every day. <laughs> you, you kind of have to... Um, you just take more interest in it. I, I, I've always kind of believed you can't trade on paper. Um, and even if you buy one call option, it's still going to be there staring at you every day. Um, so is that like, yeah. And also, yeah. and also what it does is it then, you then switch to the insecurity of the position. Am I wrong? Am I going to lose my money? So if, you know, if it's too small, you tend not to do that. If it's a little bit bigger, it doesn't have to be big. You're like, really, am I going to lose the money in this? I'm like, what have I got wrong in this? And then in the discovery of what I've got wrong, you might find why you're more right or whatever it is. But as you say, just getting something on gets you to focus on it. And a lot of good investors do that. Yeah. And how do you think of, I mean, this is a super hard question, but I know it's one of the hardest questions in macro. Like, how do you think about sizing these types of trades? Like, um, yeah. I, and also related to that is, I mean, I could see a world where if I was, super into something um, that was say pretty volatile, then I'll probably want the rest of my portfolio to be incredibly boring. Else I'm probably going to go absolutely insane every day. And we're just, again, getting into that kind of mental side of it. Um, and um, so, I mean, you know, I know you've talked a lot about Bitcoin recently and having a big position. Does that mean, you know, outside of that, you're in kind of pretty boring things or um, how do you kind of, because I think a lot of this is about staying mentally sane because this could be a 10 year trade sometimes, right? I mean, most people think so so let's step back how do you take the big bet you're either in your 20s and it doesn't matter but the chances are unless you're starting a business you can't generate much wealth because you don't have much wealth so you know you don't have a lot of capital to put in your big bet but really how i've always approached this is when can you take a big bet out of position of security and i've i wrote an article about this in uh, macro insiders recently is the first thing i urge anybody to do is is, is physically own their house. It doesn't have to be the house you live in, but a place that you can go and live. And if you can own that in cash, if the first part of your savings journey or investment journey is just buying a place to live in, and people are like, yeah, but I think property's overpriced, it doesn't matter because you have to live somewhere. So if you have that, so I was really fortunate to be able to buy a house in Spain back in 1999. Uh, I was working at Goldman and friend you know somehow I got off of this house and it was not particularly an amazing house but it was a six bedroom house on a hill in Spain on the coast or near the coast and it was 250,000 or 200,000 pounds I think it was and I was lucky enough to be able to buy it in cash and then it changed my entire life now I had a fancy apartment in London with a mortgage and all the other stuff but I knew that if I ever screwed up if I ever wanted to get out of the rat race 
anything, I can move to this house in Spain and I could basically get a job in a bar and I'm safe. That mental security is really empowering. So the next phase for me was then, you know, I eventually end up paying off my place in London and decide I can now take the risk of moving to Spain and semi-retiring. Because otherwise that's a risk. But I knew that I basically had the ability to live. And if I could then find a source of income, which ended up being GMI, I didn't have to use my savings. Okay, and that, that bet paid off very well. But I could do it because I had a position of security to do it from. Then after that, it was then having written GMI and accumulated um, uh, more capital, I started looking for, okay, what is the bigger bet to take? And, you know, one of those ended up starting a business, which was Real Vision. And, and then within that, also the ability to then say, okay, look, there's some macro bets and they're, they're interesting. And as you rightly said, you know, the macro down cycle, all returns, you know, you, basically all returns get uh, pushed into a very short-term time horizon. I mean, the first part of this particular COVID thing was, you know, literally two months, which was an extraordinarily fast time to generate returns. It may be a longer time horizon and may, may, maybe we'll see this event play out longer, maybe not, but okay, you can make some macro returns. But it's the ability to see something that can be even bigger, do your work on it, and then make that decision. Really, it comes out of position of security. So then you can size things differently, because if not, you can't. And the, the key factor is, so the security and then income. So let's say you totally screw up your big bet. Well, if you've got income, you can rebuild your savings. So you can, you can make maybe one or two of those bets, depending how old you are. Um, and that's okay, because one of them may not work, and that's okay too. But if you've got an income, and even better, a diverse income stream, maybe two income streams, then you really are in a very robust position to take a life-changing bet. So that's kind of how I think about this. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and um, so often, I mean, I guess Steve Jobs was very famous for this, but m more recently, probably people like Elon Musk, like a lot of entrepreneurs have this kind of reality distortion field around them. Some don't, but, um, and, you know, and, and they kind of are very much, you know, in, in control of their business. Um, so, but if we take, I know something like Bitcoin, which you talked about quite a lot recently, which, you know, could fit into this kind of understanding a new paradigm kind of um, bucket. Um, I mean, it's obviously pretty well known already, um, but, um, but it you know, clearly has a huge amount of potential upside. Then I was kind of thinking, if I'm an entrepreneur, I run my, you know, you run real vision, you're in control of it. Um, and, but if people are, how, how do you get, get through the, the kind of mental aspects of something like Bitcoin really no one's in control. I mean, I mean, that's half the point, right? Um, you can't call the shots. Um, does it require a different thought process? I mean, cause in some ways you could just be like, well, just buy it and forget about it. I mean, in that regard it's very, very different to running a business. Yes, exactly. It's actually much less stressful, particularly if you set it up in the way that I've just talked about, it's actually much less stressful because you really don't care if it goes up or down 50%. And if it's, if the bet is wrong, okay, I lose 50% of the investment. Over time, I have another bet, which is real vision, and a bet in myself, which is income streams. So it, it's that layering that allows you to, to do these kind of things. 
how I like to, to approach this is I try and live in a future state. That's what I find the most useful in macro. Most people struggling with macro tend to try and live in the present and make sense of it. That's just not relevant. The actual thing is future states and the probabilities of those future states. Now, th there's no mathematical science. You're never going to get the probability right. But if you think the probability is much higher than the market ascribes it to, then it gives you an edge because you can start looking at ways of expressing that trade or whether that trade is so worth doing that nothing else matters when it becomes the dominant trade. Alex Gurevich talked about you know, that kind of trade dominance where US Treasury bonds were the single most dominant trade on earth, and I think he was probably right. Um, and they were for m maybe my entire career, 30 years. I think you know, most of the world's macro legends made more money out of that bet than anything else. And it's probably the same bet, really, that the real estate guys took as well, and maybe even the same bet that the equity guys took. It was all one bet. Um, and that proved to be a genius bet. Um, but the, the fixed income way of expressing that bet was so superior because it's risk-adjusted volatility you know, and its return profile that came from it. Bitcoin is slightly different, but the risk-adjusted return profile is extremely interesting because you know, there is a potential for it to go much, much further, and its downside is now not zero. So, okay, that really skews the risk reward massively in your favor. If the downside's 50% and the upside's 20x or 50x or even 10x, well, that's 20 times the risk you're taking. I mean, that's a great bet. Um, so, if you can afford to do that, why would you not? Now, you may not agree with the thesis, and that's fine too. Other people will find different bets, and other people will find incredibly successful bets and that's the nature of for example venture capital investing they look at a number of these what they deem to be asymmetric trades and essentially vc investing is a is an option portfolio um which i think is very interesting and it's proven over time that those options have been tended to be mispriced um if you can have some sort of filtering process about what kind of businesses you want to invest or what the thematics are that you want to invest in so you know it, it really is that future state is where is the world going to so it's skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is now. And, and that is one of the biggest advantages you can have, is that future state. And so, you know, if the future state of uranium is that, okay, for green energy to really have a meaningful impact on Earth, then the new advantages in nuclear technology um, mean that countries should be adopting it. Good thesis, totally agree. Uh, the next thing is some proof. And yet we haven't seen enough of it. So therefore, the thesis it still stands for the future state, but the acceleration state isn't there. Um, so people, are, I think, are very early because if it does happen, it'll happen over 10, 20 years. It'll be a super trend. That's great. The advent of China was a super trend and you could have basically bought anything that got sold to the Chinese and made your fortune. Uh, you know, that's when people like Lakshmi Mittal this, this, the Indian steel tycoon became briefly the richest man in the world because basically he pulled stuff out of the ground and sold it to the Chinese and they were having the largest boom in all history. So, you know, it's these kind of things. It's understanding that macro trend. Are we at the point where it's actually playing out and then you can go for it? Yeah, so that's, it's an interesting point on venture capital. So, I mean, I helped set up well, it's one of the largest firms in Europe called Atomico with the Skype founders about 10 years ago. And, you know, we made a lot of very early stage bets and some worked, some didn't. But in some ways it was easy because these bets were illiquid. So, you know, you would invest in a private company and actually 
99.9% of people couldn't invest in that company. You know, it wasn't traded publicly. And so this is all related to how to take profits. It's kind of the next thing I'd love to dive into. So in some ways it was easy because you were forced to just hold it for 10 years. And there was really not much you could do. Now, obviously throughout that period, secondary markets kind of, you know, driven originally by Facebook, um, you know, became um, more important to venture capitalists. But, but broadly, um, you're in something illiquid. Um, but, you know, and, and so if I kind of think about Bitcoin, um, I mean, that's something I first bought at about 200 bucks. I held it to 20,000. I wish I could say I sold it perfectly. I absolutely didn't. I didn't take any profits on the way up. So that was 100x. And then it went all the way down to 3,000. Um, and that, again, it, it obviously didn't go to zero. So it's not like a seashell or a tulip. Um, so that made me think a lot about, well, if there's now another cycle where it really revs up, then I've kind of got a much more thought through framework for how I take profits. Um, but again, if you take too many profits on the way up, you lose a lot of the upside. So how, how would you kind of think through that kind of balance? Um, um, it's difficult. I mean, I also was long at 200. I mean, I think the first time I got long was, I don't know, 20 something dollars and I doubled my money and then I got out again and then I got back in at 200. And then in that big rally up, I sold out at two and a half thousand and thought I was a genius only to see it go up to, you know, 20,000. <clears> and so I'd sold out too early. Um, but it doesn't really matter. You can only really run it all the way if you're slightly insane or you have an ability. It's really hard to do. So, you know, there are tricks and tips, which is, and most founders in businesses do this, is once their business really takes off, they tend to sell some. Yep. Uh, secure their lives. Again, the same idea that I've been talking about. And then you can run the bet. So let's say you're lucky enough to put 10 grand into Bitcoin and suddenly it's worth a million dollars and you're thinking, holy shit, I'm now a millionaire. Well, as you've learned is it's a very volatile asset. So maybe the best thing is just take 50% off, buy yourself a house and run the rest. Then you don't care and you can take the risk. So it's, it's again, it comes from the position of security. You know, hedge funds really struggle with this because you can't take long-term bets because your investors want you to take the profits or stuff like that. So it becomes really difficult because of the monthly mark to market and how it marks against you. And if it goes down, you can go up 100% one month and down 10% the next and you get stopped out. It's crazy, but that's how the business works. So it's, it's again, it's about structuring it. Only the crazy can ride it all the way to the top and, and, um, and keep going because you never know where the top is. So it's, it's actually very difficult. So again, it's all about that position from which you take the risk as opposed to the risk itself. Yeah, and it's a good point on founders of businesses. So, I mean, when I was a VC, I think what a lot of people in the public don't realize is actually the VCs encourage founders. This is once you build a business that's probably had got a valuation of several hundred million dollars, probably has a pretty consistent revenue stream. It's probably not profitable if it's in technology, but it doesn't really matter. Actually, VCs really encourage founders to take um, generally a few percent of their equity off the table so they don't have to worry about um, 
the things you say, you know, and they can buy a modest house. And now, of course, we all hear stories where founders have taken probably way too much off the table. Uh, but almost all the examples I saw when I was a VC were, were actually perfectly fair enough, good examples, and it allowed the founders to really kind of focus on building the business. And of course, VCs have the luxury that hedge funds don't have. You know, they can kind of ride it. Um, so Yeah, I mean, I've got a friend of mine right now who's building a, it's a really interesting kind of, a uh, big data company built around mobile security that he sells to police forces and all of this stuff um, that looks for pattern recognition in phone usage for crime and stuff. Um, and he, he was an ex-VC um, and he took over one of his businesses um, and now runs it. And, you know, the amount of risk that he'd had to take, the sleepless nights, the miserable fear, the horror of being an entrepreneur. And he just recently got the opportunity to sell some secondary. So he paid off his mortgage gave himself some money in the bank, and now he's refreshed. He can now take and swing the bat and try and build this into a much bigger business. But before that, he was clouded by, fuck, what happens if this goes wrong? I've put all my life and soul into this, and I could be left with nothing. So again, it's the same thing. It's that position of security allows you to take risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just for people listening, like I mean, I know, you know I've talked a lot about Bitcoin before, and I mean, some ideas I came up with on it were, and I've seen you know, other people come up with this. It's not original, but you know, it, what, you know, if you are, if you do get it, and if say you got it at three thousand or three, you know, three four thousand, uh, whenever it was, year year and a half back, you know, maybe just getting your principal back, even if that means selling a quarter of your Bitcoin, you know, then it means you can't ever lose money on it. I mean, this is kind of simple things, which, again, a lot of people just just don't do but if you you know if you do it you probably feel a lot better um and, you know, i came up with this it may be completely stupid but my in my my head now what we're at about 10k i'm like well if bitcoin's at 50 it's about a one trillion market cap now that doesn't really mean anything except it's just a super duper round number that's going to get talked about well you know maybe that could be it might fly through it might not um, but in my mind i'm like i will be selling some then um so i've actually written it down and i'm going to force myself to do it um and, um, you know, one could take it to extremes and have um, sell orders on exchanges, but I wouldn't want to keep Bitcoin on them. So it's probably not too smart. Um, so have you seen like stuff like that? Because I know I struggle. I, I, I'm quite good at getting in when it's low, but I struggle much more about getting out when it's high. And I just know that's my... Because you're, 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 fight, you're fighting human emotion. Yeah, yeah. You're either fighting it because you're greedy or fighting it because you're fearful because you haven't got a plan, but now you've learned and you've developed a plan. And see, in VC investing, the plan is much easier because you're looking for the exit of the business and then it forces you out. Um, but with a personal investment, it's much harder. And I, just having a vague plan to hold yourself accountable stops that emotion because you need to override your emotions and focus on the rational reasons and the trade construction that you've put together so i think what you're doing is dead right you know i think that makes total sense to me is okay 5x in bitcoin terms would not be the biggest rise of all time you know it's not particularly significant in bitcoin terms because bitcoin trades like an option but it's significant in your terms you can get out of the bet and say right my savings that i put into that investment are now secure and i can run the rest and you know that allows you to sleep at night and not worry about it now because you're in for free, as you said, which is always a great strategy. 
Right. And I think this, 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 you know, I mean, I'm married, I've got two kids and like, um, married two. And like, I think, you know, my, my wife knows I have a, I've written it down, right? It's not just a plan in my head. It's like, it's written down and, and not on computer, but like in actual pen, you know, ink on paper. And, and it's like, and I've told her what it is. And cause I find like, I've seen, I've, I've been very lucky with this, but I've seen other people where just their personal relationships got strained because they had, let's say half their net worth in something that was, let's say, pretty volatile. Um, and, you know, their friends would, and let's say it was working and they had lots of profits. Well, then their friends and family were, were even more convinced they were crazy and nuts. <laughs> and just like by um, actually writing things down, explaining it, um, and um, not least because I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, that kind of really helped. Um, so, I, you know, I, you're yep. right on VC. It's kind of easy because you, you invest, you swing for the fences, it either works or it doesn't. It's pretty much how it is in earlier stage stuff. Yeah, and it's true. And your, your, your exit of the trade is driven by somebody else. It's actually not driven by yourself. It's yes. when you can get a decent exit. And, you know, that, that's usually driven by the marketplace itself as opposed to you. So it's different. So, yeah, I think, you know... I, I think these things are really important. The other thing that's really important is if you are in a very big trade and it's long-term, you have to stop all the noise. One of the greatest investors of all time that is not well-known because he was very below the radar screen was called Nick Roditi. So he massively outperformed Stan Druckenmiller at Soros. He was based above a shop in Hampstead High Street in London and was a man of externally very modest life. He was the greatest risk taker at Soros by a long way. His volatility was much higher than Stan's. I mean, he had down years, Stan didn't really. But he would just not speak to anybody. I never forget, he would call up the desk at Goldman. He was speaking to one of the Bond futures guys. And he'd put on this enormous like $10 billion bet in German buns. The markets have gone up and down and blah, blah, blah. And there's noise and, you know, the, the Bundesbank and the Fed and blah, blah, blah. And he just doesn't speak to brokers, doesn't speak to anybody. He reads the FT, didn't have any screens. So you go into his office, there's a ticking grandfather clock, his collection of, you know, antique Korean porcelain, which is like the most priceless collection in the world of it. He's just, he's a weird polymath. And the FT on his desk. And then he would call up the desk at Goldman three months later. And he said... Those bund things I bought, where are they now? <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? And they're like, well, they're kind of five points against you, Nick. So Nick's you know, probably down like $700 million or whatever the number was. He goes, oh, that's rather unfortunate. I think we should buy some more of those. Puts down the phone. And this is, a, this is not a real money asset allocator, you know, with a, with a you know, asset allocation model. This is a massive speculator who takes ridiculous leverage. And he was in his, at that point, he was probably in his 60s. Unbelievable. I've never seen anybody like it. But what allowed him to do that was, A, he was bloody good at these things. He could stomach risk. You know, 30% drawdown to him was fine because he would make 300% upsides. Um, but it was his ability to filter out the noise that really helped. It's like the, you're going to drive yourself nuts if you listen to everybody on Bitcoin. Um, 
or whatever your bet is, you need to just filter out, but still do the research. So you're not saying, well, my thesis is right. Price is the end. Price in the end is the scoring system. So it will tell you if you're right, but still keep doing research about it, but don't let yourself get your family or your friends talk you in, talk you out, the brokers and all the other noise that's out there. It's just not relevant. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I had to come up with a way because Twitter's terrible for this, right? So yeah, really um, bad. I discovered, um, I was always a lurker on Twitter. Um, and I had, you know, whatever, a thousand followers from years ago because I was a VC and people followed you, right? So, but uh, from the early days of Twitter. But, um, and then I realized, of course, lists. So now I just have like a macro list, which is the only thing I look at. Um, and I, I do have, of course, everyone I follow, which includes a whole bunch of Bitcoin stuff and crypto stuff. Um, but I, I, I very, very rarely look at it um, because, yeah, you're going to get to your point, like 58 million different points of view and just so much noise. Um, and so, and on the macro side, it's you know, maybe only uh, you know, maybe only one in a hundred kind of tweets are actually about crypto. You know, there's so many asset classes, and that's kind of how I dealt with it because um, it was so overwhelming, and I, I felt I was second guessing myself like every hour of the day. Um, it's like you know, I, I've had this view on the dollar. I structured my whole life about being long dollars. You know, I was living in Spain. My base currency was euros. My assets were in euros. My savings were in euros. And I was billing in euros. So my income was in euros. And it was one, it had come down from about 150, 150 something, um, down to about 148 and a half. And I thought, okay, there's a regime shift and the dollar's going to change direction and it's going to go on for a decade or longer. And so I shifted everything into dollars, including forcing myself to buy property in a US dollar place. So I couldn't, mess around with the trade and that, that paid off really well. Um, but I've got still a strong dollar view and all I get is noise. People, you're wrong because of this, you're wrong because of that. In the end, I've stated my thesis. I've done all the work I could possibly do on it. The only thing that's going to change my mind now is the price. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy with that. I just leave it that way. Um, but people, just too many opinions. So I don't read other people's research generally. Um, that's a rule of thumb that I have. A, because I get paid to think independently. So that's important, but also because there's too many opinions. And if you don't do your own homework and if you don't think, okay, this is my thesis, this is why I've done it, this is my plan, then you're just wasting your time. You're gonna lose money. Yeah, that's a good point. So I, 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 I'm happy to pay for data um, but much less on, I don't pay much for research. Um, but, but I want to yeah. get some people, I, some people I will read because they broadly cover a whole bunch of things that I'm interested in and maybe some have some variant perceptions and that's useful. Yeah. Or there's people who are kind of out of the box thinkers. Kirill Sokolov's 13D research gets you set up for some super trends you may not have been aware of, um, a long time in advance. And that's valuable, but following people's trade ideas is not valuable. So, so I wanted to dive into, I mean, you said it when you gave your story about Nick, which was, you know, and it doesn't matter what the numbers are, but you, let's say you've, you've done your, you've done your research. Um, you know, you've, you, you've, you've maybe started small, you, you've watched the price action, you know, you think there's more things confirming your rights, but again, it's not obvious to the market yet. Um, 
and then, I mean, so Bitcoin's a great example of that, right? And, and let, we're at 10K, it's, it's perfectly plausible. It could go to five. I mean, it, it's not impossible. Um, no. And um, anyone that thinks it's impossible is definitely kidding themselves. Um, now, yeah. it, you know, may, maybe it never goes below the 10 again. Who knows? That's become a meme on online anyway. But, um, but like, so let's say, you know, you've made that bet. And then it's, yeah, you mentioned, you know, 30% down, 50% down, whatever it could be. Like, I mean, all the textbooks would say, whatever you do, don't double down. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, someone might have extra dry powder, right, that they could. Um, like, what, 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 I mean, again, th there's no right answer here, but like, what are the things going through your mind in that type of scenario? So the thing going through your front is what is your investment hypothesis? If your investment hypothesis, which is mine, which is it started with retail, it's going to go to institutional. So therefore, the amount of absolute capital that's flowing into the space is going to be absolutely enormous. That's one hypothesis. Second hypothesis is that that um, Plan B's stock to flow ratio has value, and it has value not only for Bitcoin but for gold and other things. And that that is an interesting investment framework. And thirdly, this technology is groundbreaking, and it has future potential uses for the entire financial system and beyond that. So there's three legs of why I believe in this trade. So I'm looking if those if those things are disproven. And that's why I got out Bitcoin at two and a half thousand, because the thing that concerned me was the fork with the Bitcoin cash. And I'm like, okay, I don't understand this. Does this mean we're basically creating extra money supply? Are we diluting? Is it like a script or a rights issue? What, what is this? And I, I said, right, I don't understand the out. And I absolutely hold to that decision because I did not know. And it could have gone both ways. So it was the right decision to make. So let's say Bitcoin falls to $3,000 over the next two months. The question is, is has something changed? Is a Bitcoin ETF going to get launched at some point? Unless that's changed, there's money going to flow into this. Are the asset allocators finding that Bitcoin offers a diversification um, to their portfolios that allows them to have better constructive port portfolios. My guess is yes, that's not going to change. The 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 um, Bitcoin community has not done enough work on this, and I've been talking to a few people about doing that because it's super important how it fits into like Barra portfolio construction and stuff like that. Um, is the groundbreaking technology going to be hindered in any way? So is that where suddenly we we realise that? there is a risk that we didn't understand that this technology is not as good as it was. Has that changed or not? Has some big hurdle got in the way that could change things? Now, we've seen various government ban it. It doesn't really make any difference. So I don't think that's the risk. I don't know what those risks are. If we knew them in advance, um, it, the game would be much easier, but usually you don't know what they are. So I'm always assessing those things. Has anything changed? as simple as that um and we're not talking about short term but structural you know somebody getting an etf uh, application turned down is not a game changer the you know some ultra regulator saying there will be no approval for any funds for bitcoin is a game changer now is that a massive game changer overall no it's one of the legs of my hypothesis that's all so it's kind of, there's a lot of this assessing you have to do. Yeah. And then that's an interesting point on the, um, 
the whole, I don't know, to me, it was sort of clear a few years ago that the whole correlation aspect and it's a perfect portfolio diversifier. You can talk about sharp ratios, whatever you want to get into. That's exactly how I explained it to people in financial services. Uh, and I sort of just assumed that's how people would explain it. But then I got onto Bitcoin Twitter and realized that that's like a one in a thousand people talking about it like that. Um, and to me, that seems like, uh, I agree with you that that's like a super important kind of theme to kind of, um, it, it, it's how, how can these, because I mean, another way to think of it was someone was telling me the other day, this was a, a very successful guy who said he's a retired hedge fund manager. And he said, oh, um, yeah, this crypto stuff, I don't really get it. He's like, but I, I'm kind of too old and long in the tooth to understand this stuff. But he said, it's moving so fast with what's happening with, you know, regulators and, you know, the, he knew about the office of the controller thing, um, you know, in terms of basically starting prime brokerage and, and, and then, um, and I said to him, yeah, I said, it's, it's kind of funny because if you ask anyone in crypto, they'll say how slow everything's moving and how completely frustrating it is. Um, and you've just got these kind of two groups of people that the, that they're just not talking to each other with a language that's like meshing yet. Um, no, and was, you know, I honestly think Michael Saylor did a disservice, even though he's brilliant and I loved his interview that I did with him and love what he's done. The way he described Bitcoin is going to turn off every single treasurer. What he sh if he'd gone out and said, right, here's our portfolio allocation for our treasury operations. Here's what it looks like with Bitcoin. Here's what it looks like without Bitcoin. And here's the dampened portfolio effect in terms of risk-adjusted returns that we get from this. Here's how it models out into various scenarios, including inflation, deflation, et cetera. So this is why I've taken the bet. That would have got every corporate treasurer's attention. Um, to say it's the hornet's nest and the blah, 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 you know, People don't get it because he's talking Bitcoin language and not asset allocator language. Right. But that's because he's a, he's a tech entrepreneur. So, you know, he went down the rabbit hole and I mean, I, look, I get it. I mean, um, I can see why he thinks like that though, uh, because he put the time in and, and, and you know, your average treasurer of a FTSE or S and P 500 company is yeah, certainly not going to think like that. Um, so no, exactly. And we, we need to bridge that language gap. And I, I've mentioned this a, a few times before. I, I, I observed the period when I was at Goldman back in 1998, 97, 98, 99, when a group within Goldman launched the GSCI, the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index. And what they did to get adoption for that, because they were driving a new business unit, was basically show in the terms that the asset allocator spoke to and that's talking to people like Mercer who deal with all the kind of the, you know, how pension funds are modeled out and all of this stuff. They went to all of these guys and said, listen, this is what putting a commodity index into a broader portfolio does in terms of inflation, risk diversification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They then agreed that, that yes, it did have these attributes and therefore they could then go to the pension plans and say, listen, you need to have some of this exposure. And, you know, it, it ended up becoming, a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollar business because of it um, in terms of, you know, uh, capital put to work in, in, into commodities, uh, which is one of the things that fueled the big commodity rally of the early 2000s. Um, that same conversation is not being had because unfortunately, and fortunately, um, the investment banks who understand the customers with the capital aren't involved in the trade yet. So they're not telling 
the asset allocators in a language that they understand. So basically shouting at them in French when they only speak English. And that always works well. Um, always. It's a brilliant strategy the Brits have done for years. <laughs> My French is terrible. So, um, <laughs> How about like timescales? So, it, I mean, Bitcoin in some ways is easy because, I mean, it's it's well actually it's actually a lot less volatile than it was but um it's you don't need to buy options in bitcoin i mean yes there are options markets but they're not long term yet you know there's no kind of you know yield curve and all of that um but you can just own bitcoin and leave it for 10 years and in effect you're, you're it's like an option anyway right uh, because of its volatility it, it could go up a lot and it doesn't decay and it doesn't, dec- and it doesn't exactly. decay you've got no carry cost and so but that's pretty unique like it, to your point on oil like you know you couldn't just um, you would have to use a bunch of leverage, which some people may or may not be able to. Um, and also, you know, there are only certain options you can buy for many, 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 many years out, unless you're doing it OTC. I mean, obviously, Euro dollars is pretty easy, but like um, that trade's sort of been done now. Um, unless you think it's going to end the other way. Um, but like, because to, to to really make these giant returns, you're probably talking five to ten year timeframes. Um, and um, I mean, I, I mean, I get if something, you know, in March, there'll be people that with leverage probably made giant returns incredibly quickly. Um, but like, how can, I mean, I guess with the, 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 the anecdote earlier on the oil thing was he bought companies, he had property, you know, it, it was, there was a lot more to it. I'm just wondering, you know, how can people, you know, if you also, if you find Google early, let's say, that's kind of easy, you just hold it. Um, but how about for the trades that are, are not like that? I mean, how can you um, not just basically, how can carry costs not just kind of screw you over time for a lot of these trades? Well, they do. So timing is an element of this, right? Yeah. There's very rare that you have assets. I and mean, that's why people hold gold because it doesn't have much of a carry cost. It has some, right? But your storage is not that expensive. But financial instruments usually have a carry cost because they either come with leverage or whatever it is, there's some custodian fees and other fees layered on. So it comes, it, it comes with a cost and you need to factor that into your equation. This is why, you know, yes, people love options because they can make you really rich, but they can make you really poor as well. <laughs> because, you know, if you don't get your timing right, it's wrong. So often how I like to think of these things and how I've seen really good people do this is you have the trade on, let's say Bitcoin now. If it starts breaking out and confirming the price action that you expect, you should be then adding aggressively. Right. Because your cost basis is now much lower. Yes, you're going to get pullbacks, but you're, you're now doing that. So the, the big wedge breaks higher. We're at 15,000 and motoring up. You can probably start you know, significantly adding to your trade because you've kind of de-risked your hypothesis because it's now starting to play out, which is the Richard Rainwater way of then adding the leverage of oil, um, oil futures on top of his property bets. Yeah, no, no, that's good advice. Um, Also, one of the things I like looking at is, I mean, and so if that's happening, Bitcoin's interesting one where you can see that it's kind of, its volatility is still high, of course, but it, it has kind of structurally trended down um, over the last 10 years. I mean, it was beyond nuts. I mean, you're talking about volatilities of 500, you know, kind of <laughs> when it went down 80% in a day um, back in 2011. But it's kind of, it's just another one of those, you know, generally 
if you've got structurally trending down volatility in an asset over many, many years, it's a pretty good thing. It's just another little confirmation um, that people can look for. Um, well, don't forget, when volatility goes down, it allows you to take more risk. Again, this is why treasuries and euro dollar, I mean, you know, there was no miracle to the euro dollar trade. The miracle to the euro dollar trade was two things. One, you could buy longer dated options. Yep. Um, that gave you insane leverage. Um, massive liquidity. And I can't remember the third point, which you were just addressing. Um, well, there's no, well, I mean, I guess the point is you could, the carry cost was pretty low because you could buy such long dated options. The, basically, the theta burn wasn't too bad. No, that's right. Oh, 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 oh and volatility is super low. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, then you can take insane amounts of risk. And that's why I got across to people. And that's why that trade was so successful for many. Is they're like, holy shit, I now see it. Now, that opportunity is not around any longer, really, in the bond market. But that's why the bond market was such a big moneymaker. If you listen to Stan Druckenmiller's interview on Real Vision, he said, look, I make most of the money in bonds. Why? Because they trade 24 hours a day. They're massively liquid. They have low volatility. But when they trend, they massively trend. Um, and you can get insane leverage. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But currencies yeah. currencies can be that too. Yeah. Currencies are really interesting. When they trend, and we're in this frustrating non-trending world, but really, once it starts trending, I mean, it's an easy game in currencies. You can take massive leverage. And that's where some of the famous speculators of the 90s and 80s made a lot of money. Obviously, Soros. But people like Joe Lewis, who was kind of this private entrepreneur who who became one of the biggest currency traders on earth, just because I think it was the dollar weakness phase he was trading. Um, you could just take massive leverage with like five vol. I mean, it's fantastic. Right. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, five vol is like, yeah, that's nice. Um, interesting on Euro dollar though. So this is like, I'm not saying this is a trade to do now, but like at some point in the history of the universe, um, rates will probably go up. I mean, obviously none of us have any clue when, and it could be a hell of a long time. Uh, it could be 10 years or whatever. But if, if that becomes, a, and it's probably absolutely not a thing to be thinking about right now, but at some point in the next few years, it, it might be possible. It, let's say inflation is starting to eventually come in after this kind of deflationary wave we've had. But it is interesting that the reverse trade, i.e. buying the puts, could be super duper interesting at some point in the future. Um, and one could probably get yeah, into yes. that at a super low volume. Um, but it's certainly not now. But like, um, well, the problem is, is I've seen this trade in Japan for three decades. Yeah. And it's a weird maker because you're fighting the secular trend. And that's always something to take in mind. Unless the secular trend of inflation, which would basically be reducing the impact of technology and getting rid of the entire baby boom generation overnight. If you could do that, then you have a chance of a structural shift, which is what we saw in 1981, when the baby boomers had stopped buying everything as their first purchase and were basically starting to accumulate savings. And what happened is it drove down um, inflation. And obviously with Volcker's high interest rates adding to that fire, we don't have that in place. So I've generally thought that that's the wrong bet because you're fighting a secular trend. Unless you can prove to me with a really clear thesis that you're going to overcome the secular issue, 
then why fight it? That's why I prefer Bitcoin, which has a secular tailwind. Secular tailwinds are the secret to everything. Yeah, no, that's a good point. No, I, I'm not, I'm, and just to reiterate to everyone, I'm not saying this is an interesting thing right now, but um, that short-term rates are something going to spike in the US, like very much not. Um, well, although of course the other part of the trade is LIBOR, but let's maybe not get into all that. Um, <laughs> the um, Another interesting thing I thought, so with, so with Bitcoin, it's actually not that easy to hedge yourself. So, I mean, one thing is taking profits, right? And another thing could be, and let's say if you, so one of the trades I've been in is um, when gold volatility was very low, I was buying long dated calls. Like, well, they were kind of mid 21, mid 22 type of stuff on GLD, which has a pretty good liquid options market, you know, uh, out for a few years. Um, and the, um, and then they were very easy to hedge with, with puts, um, you know, when we had that big rise above 2000. Um, and that's kind of like, yeah, which I don't know, for someone in my mind, I, I prefer that to um, taking profits on it. I don't know why. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of very similar thing. Um, but like with Bitcoin, it's, it's much harder to do that because the volatility is so high. Um, but how do you think through that, that kind of debate between hedging something if you've got gains and, and, and just taking profits? Um, yeah, I mean, hedging with gains is fine, but you're going to start... I don't know. I don't know how people manage to hold on to stuff like Microsoft shares or Google shares. I mean, I have no understanding how you can do that because the noise level and the fear and the markets and the macro and all of the stuff, you just have to filter out and say, no, this is going to be the biggest company in the world. I, you know, I have no understanding. So yes, you can spend a lot of money on put hedging and you know, some people do that pretty effectively. You know, I've done a lot of that in the past. Um, nothing really wrong with it, but you, you're just going to lower your incremental returns and that's okay too. And you'll dampen your volatility if you get it right. Uh, and that's good. So it's just, it's horses for courses. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, because of, it doesn't really have that market and volatility is too high to even bother with. You have to treat it as an option in its own right. So you just think about the premiums in, it's a non-decaying option. So I'll just run it. Yeah. Oh, well, one day. Now, what, what I have been thinking about is with vol still reasonably high, even though it's come down, as you say, is maybe selling strangles on a ongoing basis, short, short dated stuff allows you to capture positive carry on the trade. Um, and then, you know, you're basically buying more every time it sells off and selling a bit when it comes up. So let's say, you know, your position is a hundred, and you do that with 25%. So you're basically trading around. I've seen people do that very, very well. It takes a lot of management in your positions. Yeah. It, but that's a pretty good way of doing it. I could see that because the problem with Bitcoin, and it's just, I mean, as you know, right, it's like it looks all kind of, oh, the vol's kind of come down and it's just kind of hanging around doing something. And then it literally will explode like, you know, 30% in five minutes or, or go down 30%. And it still has those moments. Um, which can make those types of strategies pretty dangerous versus like if you're doing that on um, you know, gold doesn't tend to do that. Right. In, in, in the same. Yeah. But you don't get paid the premium for it. Right. Well, so exactly. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's horses for courses, but yeah. if you are happy to trade out some in big spikes, trade out in um, and, and buy more in drops, you know, yes, I, I think you could probably get a really decent yield out of Bitcoin. I haven't looked at it properly, 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know how deep the option market is, but my guess is, you know, you can probably generate an extra 25% returns or so by doing that each yeah, year. It'll, it'll be about that. Yeah. I mean, people are generally getting around that on um, various different strategies, whether it be basically um, arbitraging spot and futures or all, all these things are related in some way. And that's um, right. People are getting around 20% right now in Bitcoin and, and way more in some other stuff, but that's just because the vol is much higher. But the thing, the other interesting thing though is, Bitcoin's a 24-7 market. The problem is you've got a, I, I just, I, I totally get the above strategy. It would just stress me out because it, it just never stops. And at least traditional markets stop um, for you know, at least a few hours every week. Um, I don't think that, people appreciate that yet, but you're dead right. I mean, often by Friday, you're done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin doesn't give you that. And th that's actually pretty difficult. It's, uh, you know, to be running a, a, a crypto hedge fund, I mean, what a fucking nightmare. You've got no respite. Right. And it, it gets, um, for Bitcoin, it gets easier. I mean, we've held it sounds by sounds very some amounts of time. And like, and also when you're, when you're six or so years into something, like, you know, you, you, you've really started to, well, you're in the rabbit hole. You under, you think you under, well, you never understand it. And the way I explain it now is literally polar opposite to how I did five years ago. But, um, but um, yeah, it, it's, but, but they're kind of, um, but in the space in crypto overall, of course, you know, you've got absolutely crazy volatility in most other things. Um, I think people do underestimate the 24 seven nature. Um, I, I mean, and, I, and I've so, seen so many people who I think are checking the price, like literally every five minutes. And I just think it must I think people have to, really think about the mental side of everything because um, it, it, it can totally drive you insane even if you're um, making money um, and um, you know just being able to have a rest and get away from it is, is important but you know it's not going to not be a 24-7 market right so it, it is what it is um, that's not going to maybe the best thing to do is if your time horizon is five years then just use the monthly chart and forget everything else yeah no, that's good advice um, well, we've kind of we've kind of had the hour or so, which is kind of a normal length. Is like, is there anything else like we haven't covered or things you want to? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about we can what go people don't understand. Them. Yeah, go. On. Yeah, I, I just want to quickly talk about the other one that you're more familiar with as well, is the entrepreneurial risk. Yeah, because that is an extraordinary mindset, and I now appreciate it you know, building a business from scratch, running on negative cash flows and the stress, you know, you could, it's a big bet and you can make an extraordinary amount of money building a business. But I don't think people understand the insane amounts of risk and self um, kind of self questioning that you have to do to do it because everybody tells you you're crazy. Nobody's done it before. And all the odds are stacked against you but you have a future state where you think this is going to work and you don't even know the path to get there. Um, and th that is why I think the entrepreneurial returns are still so high. Um, a, you've got a secular tailwind behind you in terms of the disruption of technology. I mean, Real Vision's case, it's video. Um, and the kind of amalgamation of all media and also moving towards from closed communities to open communities and a whole bunch of big mega trend themes but, and the, the outsized returns you can make from being an entrepreneur, which basically VC piggy on the back of, 
by providing capital to those people it is extraordinary. But the sheer amount of risk that you have to take is stomach churning. Now, as a VC, you mitigate that by having 100 portfolio bets. So they're options. So 10 go to zero, 10 break even, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, 20% do really well. Kind of some sort of Pareto's principle. But when you're running one business, you don't have any of that. You have no diversification. You have no mark to market that you can operate within. You've got no way of hedging yourself. You have nothing, just you and your sleepless nights. But the rewards are immense. Well, yeah, then you can, of course, you, stuff 100x, you can talk about a million x. So. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of unlimited, right? Yeah, and that's when we talk about wealth generation. Really, most wealth nowadays is being generated this way. Yeah, and I've told this, for, I mean, I've, I've started, I think, five businesses now, and I, I tell... I, I genuinely think everyone should start a business at some point in their life, even if it's a complete disaster, which it probably will be. And I've had absolute disasters of businesses uh, and successes and failures because I just think it teaches you so much about yourself. Um, my, I've been lucky to have a wife that always understood like when I was really stressed. Um, yeah. That's another hard thing. It's the, the strain on your relationship and your life in general is enormous. But you know, who'd never got it were my friends and my non wife, family. So as in like my parents and like siblings and like, they just assumed, oh, Chris is just doing some like job and whatever. And it's or, like, or they say things like, why are you working so hard? You don't need to do this. You know, that's what my mother says every Sunday when I call her. She goes, you don't need to be so crazy busy. I'm like, oh God, if only I could describe. But I realized it was because, I mean, and my family, for example, my mom and sister are teachers and my dad was a management accountant and CFO type person, but yeah, always in big business. And, um, it, and one day I just realized is that they just, just didn't, I, I mean, I had to explain it and then they obviously thought I was even more insane, but they just didn't get it because they hadn't been there. But, but, but to see this stuff's not taught at school. Um, you know, people are not encouraged. I mean, I think this is where the U S has got such a great advantage in many ways, which I mean, maybe it's different now, but like, over the last decades, people encouraged to try and fail and it's okay. And I think Europe's always had a bit more of an issue with that now in somewhere like- Well, uh, Europe's has an issue with failure. I mean, exactly. a good friend of mine who I grew up with was Peter Jones from Dragon's Den. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Peter's tried to develop these kind of entrepreneurial institutes, but England, even for him himself, everybody just wants him to fail. Because they wanted to see him fall flat on his face because hubris in Europe gets stamped out. Hubris led to war, right? So there was a strong reason why Europeans don't like hubris. Americans embrace it. It's a frontier mentality. And that's really empowering. Asians also have some of that too. So oh. it's, it's very cultural. Um, and the US is incredibly good for this. I mean, it has a lot of flaws, as we all know, versus, I think, versus Europe. But this one piece of magic the U.S. has is truly extraordinary. You are allowed to fail. Right. And I've spent a lot of time in uh, China and India. And what well, I think it's probably more, I think probably China's closer to the U.S. on that. In the, I mean, it's a completely different country, of course. But you have got this incredible um, um, group now of entrepreneurs. You know, and of course, gigantic businesses you know, like Tencent and Barber have been built. Um, and people aspire to be entrepreneurs there. Um, and, well, look, I mean, yeah. There's a simple way of looking at this, Chris, is 
look where people go crazy over casinos. Like we had casinos in London or in England when we grew up and nobody talked about, oh, let's go to the casino. Oh my God, right? But in America, it's like Vegas. This is the big sexy thing and everything else. Yeah. China's the same. Yeah, get to Macau. <laughs> yeah, they're mad punters. Indians aren't big punters. So it's, it's, it's a real mentality of speculation to achieve returns. Um, and in Europe, that just doesn't exist. And that's okay. Because, you know, I, I remember meeting a family office when I was at GLG running the hedge fund, and they were looking at investing in us. And it was one of these, like, Italian chocolate families. I'm like, and this was 2001. And I'm like, how much is your family worth how much is the business worth he said oh it's probably about 15 billion euros at the time i'm like and tongue-in-cheek i said why don't you just sell it with the stock market bubble that's out there people are buying these kind of businesses he said well and then what he said right now we have like 40 family members and we can all get paid tens of millions of dollars a year out of this business we don't need any more accumulation of money um, this business has been around for 150 years. It's kept all of our generations of family rich. Uh, we manage according to that. He says, I don't care if the share price goes up or down <clears throat> 70%. And that's happened many times. It literally makes no difference to us. And if I sold the business, Bund yields at the time were like 4%. He goes, I get 4% of my money. He goes, what's the bloody point? It's a very different mentality. It's wealth preservation. It's multi-generational. It's not... You know, it's, it's very rare that somebody becomes world domination rich in Europe. There's a few people, obviously, um, you know, uh, LVMH and the guy who started um, Zara and a few others. It's rare just because it's just, it's not deemed necessary. Yeah. So how about someone listening? Like, I don't know, someone's in their mid-20s. Um, I get a lot of people, a lot of listeners are in their mid twenties because they message me saying, you know, that, that why did, why wasn't I taught any of this stuff at school? Um, and let, you know, people, if someone wants to be an entrepreneur, like what advice would you give? You, you know, because you might not have that idea or that not everyone's going to be maybe suited to actually being the first person. And so I don't take the argument that you don't learn it at school. Everything in life is learnt from everybody around you. Expose yourself to people. And now with the internet, you can expose yourself to anybody and learn from them. That's the best learning of all. School, you can't teach this. It has to be something you learn by osmosis. Is this what suits my personality? Because some people aren't risk takers. Some people are brilliant number twos. Some people are the detail guy that can make somebody else successful. So understanding your place in that entrepreneurial hierarchy is one of them. Maybe you're really not a risk taker. You've come from a you know, really poor background and really all you want is stability because your background was instable. That's okay too. You can go and work for one of these big inspiring companies um, that is kind of changing the world. So it's a matter of absorbing who you are and also absorbing all of the information around you. You know, listening to podcasts, seeing how people do things, listening through you know, our conversation today about the big bets and is this something that applies to me? Is it something I should be thinking about? Is there an opportunity that I see that others don't see by applying things that I know? You know, is my experience in the gaming, in gaming, mean that I actually understand tokens better than most of these Gen Xers who are trying to get up to, to speed in the space? Maybe that's my advantage. 
everyone has an advantage in something. You just need to discover what it is. And school will never give you that, never has done. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. Um, and also just, you know, most people should realize that there's a bit of a misconception that everyone's a Mark Zuckerberg or Evan Spiegel and everyone in Silicon Valley is 22 years old and they start their companies. And the actual average age of founders there is about 40. Um, that's a huge spectrum. Um, but um, a lot of people have... So that, that goes they've got, back, they've got experience, so yeah. That goes back, Chris, to a conversation we were having earlier, is when to take the bet. Right, so if you've then accumulated, let's say you say, fine, I'm gonna go and work for Airbnb and I'm gonna learn a bunch of stuff and I'm gonna switch firms, I'm gonna learn stuff. Then I will be ready to take my bet because I will understand how other great companies do it. Um, and that's why so many founders are in their 40s because they get to the moment they said, I've learned a lot of stuff and I think I can apply it to something new. Uh, and that's really good. You, you, you don't have to, as you, as, as you rightly say, you don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg. And in the end, just having a great idea for a shop. I mean, so I, I talk to people right now, it's like cities are being holed out, destroyed. If you were in your twenties, you should be leaping up and down with joy because you can basically start anything on a high street now because it's been holed out and the rents are going to collapse. And we saw this in Japan where, you know, where kind of the big high street chains left a lot of these, these cities and it was replaced by artisan stuff. So I think there's enormous opportunities. The restaurant business, complete turnover of the restaurant business. Restaurants aren't going away, but a bunch of the old ones haven't survived and it's very sad, but it also gives a bunch of 20 something year olds a great opportunity to build a phenomenal business. You don't have to be the tech gazillionaire. You can just build a great business that generates good cash flow. And you know, this recession, what's going on now is creating future opportunity sets that did not exist three years ago. Yeah, that's a great point. I think next generation cities is gonna be a fascinating, fascinating area. Um, and um, you know, good, good job, um, all local governments are very flexible on planning permission. No, I'm being silly now, but, um, but, it, but it is gonna be, a, that's actually a super interesting area. Well, look, look at, look at the great cities like New York and, and New York's a great example of this. By the time the financial economy had grown super large, so you know, just before the financial crisis, it had turned into a city of midtown, chino-wearing, uh, those hedge fund vest-wearing people. And everybody was the same. It had lost all of its character because everybody was priced out. And that's, yes, that changed because downtown kind of got a bit hipper and stuff like that. But then people got priced out of that too because basically the finance people left and started businesses down in Soho. But now, and so all the artists and everybody left and then they went to Brooklyn and then they got forced out again. Uh, you know, they went to you know, Hudson Valley and stuff like that. But now these cities can generate again and really great cities get built from creative ideas from the ground up. It's not built from monoculture. So New York City and places like that, when it becomes a bit edgier, there's a bit more crime, there's people starting new businesses that are a bit different. That's when things really change. Um, and that's when real opportunity comes. So, you know, it, I think city culture is going to go back to a slightly different culture again. And that's only a good thing. Sure, all of the kind of, you know, Hamptons crowd for the weekends are going to hate it. But that's probably a good thing. Yeah, and that's a great point.
Well, Raul, why don't we leave it there? Unless there's anything else? Um, no, I think I think we've covered everything. World and <laughs> covered a lot. <laughs> um, how? I mean, in all honesty, most people already know how to follow you, but what are the best ways for? You know, the easiest way to find me on Twitter at uh, Raul R A O U L G M I G M I. Um, I'm you know I'm active there, <coughs> and obviously, if you are interested in your um, your journey of knowledge, then you know I, I would urge people to go to Real Vision. If you're not you know, if you can't afford it, go to the YouTube channel. If you can, I mean, it's a ludicrous value proposition. Um, and, you know, I built it for all of these kind of things we're talking about to give people to take the power of knowledge away from the few and give it to the many. And if we can do that, it's a good thing. Right. Absolutely. And I'll definitely second that. Like I, I'm a subscriber there. And I think, you know, for me, it's like, it's just a place I can go and you know what, I can pretty much find a video with the expert in pretty much anything in macro. And, and, and whether that was from two years ago or two days ago, um, for me, it's like that knowledge bank. Um, I use it less for the kind of, you know, what's happening exactly today. Um, although it has that stuff too. So um, yeah, I think people will find it a treasure trove. So um, very good. All right. Well, thank you very much. And um hope everyone's enjoyed it and um yeah let's um well hopefully the bitcoin thing plays off <laughs> absolutely and you can find us on twitter so if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to chat more about stuff chris and i are both on twitter too much yes all right <laughs> thanks very much Raul. all right my friend take care